Hi, you're listening to Power to the People, a weekly show about social justice movements in Central Kentucky on Lexington Community Radio. You're here with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, or KFTC. We are a 35-year-old statewide grassroots organization working to empower Kentuckians all across the state. We're glad you're here. Let's get started. Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, and this is our vision. We are working for a day when Kentuckians and all people enjoy a better quality of life. When the lives of people and communities matter before profits. When our communities have good jobs that support our families without doing damage to the water, air, and land. When companies and the wealthy pay their share of taxes and can't buy elections. When all people have health care, shelter, food, education, and other basic needs. When children are listened to and valued. When discrimination is wiped out of our laws, habits, and hearts. And when the voices of ordinary people are heard and respected in our democracy. That's Congressman Andy Barr at a recent town hall meeting in Lexington. This was just a few weeks after Republicans failed to pass a replacement for Obamacare called the American Healthcare Act. And most of the conversation this evening was about the AHCA. I should add, this was not a sympathetic crowd to the Republican congressman. Here he is trying to make the case for the AHCA by touting increased consumer options through competition. Yes, increased competition. That's just one part of the narrative to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, a huge law that resulted in almost 30 million Americans gaining health insurance. Today on our show, we're taking a moment to look at the health care overhaul in the United States and right here in our Commonwealth, what those changes look like for Kentuckians and ways that folks are organizing to push back. That's today on Power to the People with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. So maybe a good place to start is with the ACA. The Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, was passed in 2010, but what was the healthcare landscape like before the ACA? In 2009, the government provided health insurance to some people, so Medicaid for the very poor and Medicare for the elderly, and some people got health insurance through their job, but 44 million people were uninsured before Obamacare. Of course, insurers could deny you coverage for having pre-existing conditions. The only way to get around this was to work for a big company, 
which incentivized, you know, selling out. So the ACA sought to make the labor market a little more stable, and especially for those gosh dang millennials who were always freelancing and couldn't get health insurance from their employer, decrease health-related bankruptcies, insure people without insurance, and decrease the cost of health care overall. It also sought to change the access problem by setting up marketplace exchanges online, wherein you could not be denied coverage based on gender or pre-existing conditions. Now we all remember what a hot mess that was in 2013 when healthcare.gov launched, but it didn't take long for those bugs to be fixed and eventually tens of millions of people have signed up on healthcare.gov every year since it launched in 2013. The law also expanded Medicaid, which gave insurance to more poor people and required companies with more than 50 employees to provide health insurance. So has it worked? Well, things are better than before. Millions of people are insured and presumably getting care that might not otherwise have access to care. But no, we aren't really close to lowering costs. But here we are, seven years later, with a Republican president and a Republican majority in Congress in what seems like the moment that Republicans have been waiting for for the past seven years. What did they come up with as an alternative to the ACA? It's called the American Healthcare Act and it's already failed in Congress once. Many Republicans, specifically conservative hardliners in the House Freedom Caucus, calling it Obamacare light. But the AHCA has since been resurrected, this time with amendments that appease far-right GOP representatives and, not surprisingly, put consumers at risk. And it was these amendments that gave the AHCA the support it needed to pass in the House late last week, despite a dismal 17% approval rating among constituents. Of course, the AHCA still has to pass the Senate at almost impossible odds, I think. So let's talk about what this bill proposes. We can start with Medicaid, which, as you remember from earlier, was expanded in many states under Obamacare. Miranda Brown, who now works for the Kentucky Equal Justice Center, spent three years signing people up for Connect, many of them Medicaid eligible. Medicaid in the past was pretty restricted as to who could get it, people with disabilities, children. Um, but now, under the Affordable Care Act, uh, that gave states the option of expanding Medicaid to more people. So even single adults who don't have any dependents could get on Medicaid, the only requirement being your income level. Well, and, and certain um, citizens, of course, can get Medicaid and certain immigration statuses as well. But the main requirement there is income. So Kentucky decided under the Affordable Care Act to expand Medicaid, um, making so many more people eligible. Now, there's a lot in this bill that restructures Medicaid, but essentially, the AHCA leaves Medicaid intact for now. Everyone who signs up by 2020 gets to keep their Medicaid, but that year, entry to the expansion will be frozen and people will only remain eligible if they don't have a lapse in coverage for a month. But a lapse in coverage can actually be pretty common. Here's Miranda again. Um, and what's worrisome about that is especially like, for people who are homeless, if they uh, get disenrolled, which is pretty easy for a homeless person to do because if Medicaid gets return mail from you, they will disenroll you. So if somebody is in that situation and they get disenrolled because of an address issue, they may not realize they were disenrolled and a couple months may go by and then they might have a, an emergency and really need coverage, um, but they won't be able to get that bill covered until they do a new application. Yet another provision of this bill states that if your coverage lapses more than 63 days in one year, 
you can be charged 30% more for the next year. Interestingly though, another huge thing this bill does, famously, is get rid of the individual mandate put in place by Obamacare. So if your coverage lapses and you're not required to have health insurance, and you're facing a 30% increase when you do get insurance, it's likely that lots of folks will just stay uninsured once they've lapsed, if the penalty for signing back up is an increase in their premiums. But let's talk for a second about the individual mandate. Under Obamacare, we pretty much have a health insurance market with a decent mix of healthy people and sick people, since everyone is required by law to have coverage. With this sort of balance of healthy and sick people, the low cost of care for more healthy people who consume less health care can balance out the higher cost of caring for more sick people, keeping costs relatively steady across the board. But if and when we see a massive exodus of healthy people from the market, the cost of insurance for those who need it most could skyrocket. Finally, let's talk subsidies. Now, when we talk about health insurance subsidies here, we're talking, of course, about the ways in which the government can offset the cost of our health insurance through the federal exchanges. These are really just tax credits paid to your insurer upfront to lower your monthly premiums on a marketplace plan. There are ways that insurance through an employer is subsidized too, but that's for another day. So under Obamacare, you could get a subsidy based on income, but the AHCA has replaced those with a flat rate tax credit based on age. So a few things here. One, they're insisting on calling these tax credits rather than subsidies, even though they're, you know, the same thing. But more importantly, the rate changes from an income-based tax credit to an age-based tax credit. So what does this mean? Well, let's look at some numbers. Under the AHCA, a 27-year-old person living in Fayette County with an annual income of $20,000 would see their premium stay relatively the same and would receive a tax credit of $2,000 under the ACA. That's up from $1,940 from Obamacare, so not a huge difference. But what about a 60-year-old making, say, $40,000? Those are the folks who are going to see their premiums increase by $3,000 with just a couple hundred dollars more in tax credits. They are the ones seeing a higher percentage of their income go towards paying their premium. Essentially, most analysts agree that these age-based subsidies under the AHCA would have dramatic impacts, especially on older Americans who need more coverage, consume more health care, and are the most vulnerable. In fact, Standard & Poor projects that between 6 and 10 million people will lose their insurance under the AHCA because they can't afford it in one year. Lots of other predictions say between 25 and 26 million in the next 10 years. So in summary, here's what the AHCA factually gets us. More uninsured people, less coverage, higher deductibles, more power for insurers to charge older people more than young people, and hundreds of billions of dollars in tax cuts for the rich. What this feels like to me is blatant class warfare. But let's get back to Kentucky. Another huge component of Obamacare, of course, was the healthcare exchange market set up in 2013. Kentucky was the only state in the Southeast US to set up a state-based healthcare exchange, which we called Connect. It was sort of touted as the poster child for a successful reform at a state level, but Republican Governor Matt Bevin promised to dismantle Connect when he took office in 2015. So I started being an application assister, also known as a connector, in October of 2013 which was the first open enrollment period under the Affordable Care Act. Again, that's Miranda Brown. 
Miranda spent a few years working as a connector. It was upheld as the shining model of a, of a health insurance marketplace for the country. So I was proud of that. <laughs> and I was proud of Kentucky for leading the way in that way. But since we've had to move to healthcare.gov, which is the federal marketplace for insurance, um, so Bevan, Governor Bevan um, decided he wanted to close our state-based exchange and move us to the federal marketplace, which is healthcare.gov. So we started using that in November to sign people up for coverage in 2017. So if somebody has coverage on the marketplace right now, they have it on healthcare.gov. And the difference has been for me that, you know, before it might take me an hour or two to enroll someone, to do an application and enroll someone in health insurance. Whereas now it takes me maybe two three-hour meetings or three three-hour meetings. This is mostly because she simply doesn't have the access or the authority to process someone's application for them. Miranda says that sometimes it can take up to a month just to confirm someone's identity on healthcare.gov. That's a big barrier for people who don't have a credit history. A lot of times I've noticed that when I sign immigrants up, they don't have a credit history and they may not have had their social security number very long or they may not have a social security number. Maybe they're doing the application for someone else in their family, but they're the caregiver or the parent or custodian of their children, so they have to do the application. So the identity verification can be a big holdup to getting someone enrolled in a timely manner. So it's pretty clear that healthcare for us in Kentucky has been and will continue to be pretty tumultuous for the next few years. If Congress succeeds in repealing and replacing Obamacare with the AHCA, we'll have to deal with new premiums and an eventual end to the Medicaid expansion. Locally, with Governor Bevin's dismantling of our state exchange, Connect, we're now having to navigate the federal exchange. But perhaps just as huge in Kentucky has been Bevin's Medicaid waiver proposal. Because regardless of what happens with the AHCA in Congress, Bevin's Medicaid waiver is likely to be approved by 2018. So what's a Medicaid waiver? Well, we're talking here about what's called a Section 1115 Medicaid Demonstration Waiver, which, stay with me, essentially gives states considerable flexibility in how they operate their Medicaid programs, meaning exemptions from federal health care law. And this could be huge in Kentucky for anyone who's affected by Medicaid expansion. Kentucky is one of five states that have submitted an 1115 Medicaid waiver proposal to the new Health and Human Services under the Trump administration. Again, here's Miranda Brown. We were hoping that that would be denied, that the application would be denied. But now with the new Trump administration, really the the thought is that it's probably going to be approved. Now, as you can imagine, there's lots to this waiver, but we'll just touch on the basics. For one, there's no automatic renewal for those covered under Medicaid. Under this waiver, Medicaid recipients will have to re-enroll each year. This, of course, can be a pretty annoying and not surprisingly slow-moving process. But more importantly, it could easily lead to gaps in coverage, which, as we mentioned earlier, can already be pretty common. If this happens and you lose your coverage, under the proposed Medicaid waiver, you could lose your coverage for up to six months. In fact, 
There's a six-month lockout period for any gap in coverage, no matter what the reason. Once you lose it, you cannot get it back for six months. One reason why folks might be locked out of their coverage or experience a gap is maybe they can't afford to pay their premiums because yes, under this waiver, Medicaid recipients are required to pay premiums based on their income. These can range from $1 to $15 per month for the first two years and eventually can grow to $37 per month. And if you're a family of four making $24,000 a year, $37 a month is something you can really feel. So if you can't pay your premiums on time, yes, you'll be locked out of coverage for six months. And how do you get back in? Easy, just pay any overdue premiums the current month's premium, and, oh, you know, participate in a health literacy or financial literacy class in all your spare time, living below the poverty line. Ultimately, it could really hurt people who are in a vulnerable spot, um, who maybe maybe the reason why they're low income right now is because they had a surgery and they can't work, or something like that. It could be really bad for people who really need medical services. So speaking of free time, under this proposed waiver for Kentucky, Medicaid recipients will be required to meet work or volunteer requirements. Other states, such as Indiana, Pennsylvania, and Arizona, have also filed waivers that would add work requirements to Medicaid coverage. It's also a pretty popular idea in Congress right now, where a work requirement is considered being added as an amendment to the American Health Care Act that has now made its way to the Senate. The idea here, according to GOP governors who have filed for the waiver, is to put able-bodied adults back to work. Of course, 87% of those receiving Medicaid under the expansion from the ACA are already working in school or looking for work, so it's difficult to see how this measure might actually benefit those Kentuckians it aims to provide job skills or whatever. In fact, a recent study of Medicaid in Ohio reports that Medicaid actually makes it easier for folks to maintain employment. One focus group respondent reported having a debilitating hernia that kept her bedridden, but she was finally able to return to work after her Medicaid coverage made surgery possible. So on top of premiums and, oh, I didn't mention new copays under the waiver that can be up to $50, there's also added penalties for things like missing too many medical appointments without a good reason, or without canceling ahead of time. You can also be penalized for, quote, inappropriate use of the ER. Inappropriate here hasn't really been defined yet, but it's basically using the ER for a non-emergency, whatever that might mean. Finally, at the base of all these penalties is a cut across the board in benefits. Specifically, Medicaid would no longer cover dental, vision, non-emergency transportation, hearing exams, or hearing aids for adults with no dependents. Again, here's Miranda Brown. It seems like what the administration has said, uh, what the Bevan administration has said, is that this plan is intended to be like health insurance on training wheels, like teaching people how to use health insurance. But what seems to be my reality from what I see as someone who meets a lot of people who are on Medicaid as adults, for one reason or another, is that a lot of these folks, they've had insurance before. They know how it works. The reason why they don't have it now is because they maybe have a mental health issue or a substance abuse issue and they can't work or work enough to you know work full time at a place regularly to get health insurance. But a lot of them have a past where they could do those things. One of the people I enrolled, she is a single mother of a 16 year old child. She's a social worker and she's been self-employed as a social worker 
and she's been employed as a social worker in the last year. But she's also gone through periods of unemployment and through a short period of being on short-term disability because of surgery. So she's gone in and out of Medicaid eligibility. She's also had employer-sponsored coverage in this time. But when she went back to being self-employed or when she went back to being unemployed, she needed an insurance option and she couldn't afford private insurance and didn't have employer-sponsored coverage. So she's one of those cases that are actually pretty common of someone who is very savvy, who has experience using health insurance, and don't need to be punished for missing an enrollment period or something. She just needs coverage. She just needs care. And if she doesn't get care, that will make her even more enabled to work in the future. That was Miranda Brown from the Kentucky Equal Justice Center. Uh, Stick with us, we're gonna take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear some stories from some KFTC members who have been impacted by the ACA. Stay with us. Hey, what's up? I'm Jason Brown from the Southern Kentucky chapter of Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. I hope you're looking for ways to get involved and raise your voice for the rights and needs of all Kentuckians. You can visit kftc.org backslash join to become a member today by contributing any amount. Help us become 11,000 members strong and help us work to build a more just Kentucky for all. It takes just a few minutes to add your voice to the movement for a better Kentucky. We hope you'll join us today at kftc.org. Welcome back to Power to the People with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. Today on our program, this big thing called healthcare in the United States and right here in Kentucky. So as we talked about in our last segment, one thing that the ACA or Obamacare did was allow states to expand Medicaid for low-wage workers with income up to 138% of the federal poverty level. That's about $27,000 for a family of three. And 32 states chose to do so, including Kentucky, where over 443,000 residents now have Medicaid coverage under the expansion. One of them is KFTC member Sarah Martin. Because I was able to sign up for Medicaid through the expansion, I was able to leave a a job that I had been in for uh, over 14 years that I was unhappy at. Sarah started working at a grocery store when she was in high school, and she stuck with it. Years went by, and she enjoyed the seniority and the benefits. So it it was almost 15 years. It was like 14 and a half years. At the end of my time working, I was there because I was needing health insurance. Um, but yeah, like, but the health insurance was a major thing, and it was very affordable because it was also through union, so it was, it was good insurance, and it was, it was definitely affordable. She says she never really saw herself working at the same job for forever, but she was hesitant to leave. I definitely stayed in the position because I didn't know other options like I could have of like affordable health insurance if I left there. When the Medicaid expansion came through, I thought, you know, Whatever is going to happen will happen, but I'll be covered no matter what, and I'm just in general really lucky that I don't ever get sick. So now with health coverage under Medicaid, Sarah took a risk and left the job she'd been at for almost 15 years. And then, not even a year later, Sarah got sick. Um, I had a what I would consider a major health scare. Like I said, I, I don't usually ever get sick, but 
I just kept thinking it would get better. Then I finally talked to my mom and we were able to get in to see a doctor. And looking back on the bill now for what Medicaid took care of, the visit was like in like thousands of dollars to do an ultrasound, to do testing uh, for cancer, to do whatever the, it was that they did to at least diagnose what could have been wrong, which is great. Like, it's great to know that I don't have cancer. It's great to know <laughs> um, that I'm okay. But I know that there's no way I could have afforded that by myself um, if I didn't have that option. Sarah, like hundreds of thousands of Kentuckians, was able to take a risk without putting her health and her life in danger. In fact, studies show that Medicaid coverage decreases stress due to less medical debt and, of course, opens access to preventive care like the kind that Sarah received. But of course, it's not just about peace of mind. For KFTC member Cody Montgomery and his wife Lisa, expanded Medicaid is also about high-quality health care when families need it most. Here's their story. I guess we've been signed up now on Medicaid for three years. You know, we were mandated to have the health insurance, and we qualified for that. And, you know, we, couldn't afford it, we couldn't afford it any other way. It's been really helpful for us you know, since we've been married for a little over three years now. And we already have two kids, the youngest baby. Lisa actually had some complications with the pregnancy. And if it hadn't been Medicaid access, we'd have been in a lot of trouble. And it, I get real frustrated when I hear all these Republican politicians talk about how awful it is and how you can't access good health care. That's just been the opposite experience from what we've had. Lisa's been able to, you know, get any doctor that she's needed to go to. She switched to three different hospitals during the pregnancy. Uh, she was able to get a midwife. We got the best care that we could get that was closest to what we wanted. And, you know, it's just been really good for us. Uh, I was able to go to the dentist. I hadn't been to the dentist in I, 10 or 15 years, I think. Didn't have any taxes either. <laughs> One big issue that the conversation about Medicaid raises is, what exactly is poverty? I mean, prior to the ACA, only those below the federal poverty line qualified for government-sponsored Medicaid, which, by the way, is only like $12,000 for an adult with no dependents. But since states have expanded Medicaid under Obamacare, adults earning up to 138% of the federal poverty wage are now covered under Medicaid, which is still just a little over $16,000 for an adult with no dependents. For a family of four, it's not quite $34,000. I make several dollars above minimum wage. I make over 12, and we still don't make even... We mm -hmm. still don't make it, you know, even if that's looking back, I don't know how I ever got by on minimum wage making above it now. It's impossible. It's impossible to get by on minimum wage. People, you know, they talk like, oh, you just need to save money and spend more wisely. You know, and that's always true. People could always do that, but that's not going to solve the issue. You know, what, 30 years now, uh, you know, give or take, they've, you know, they've talked this big game about how they're helping us out, and yet here we are among the poorest people in the nation and the least healthy people in the nation, and they actually help us and do us a little bit of good. You know, they, they just, you know, uh, foam at the mouth, uh, wanting to get, get rid of it. You know, they just can't stand it when we actually get ahead of it a bit. Um, I would just ask them to actually consider what they're doing and, and, and realize that, you know, it's helping people, and it's not lazy, it's not a bunch of lazy people that don't want to do nothing. I mean, I work a full-time job. Lisa spent the last semester uh, working close to 50 hours a week, 
teaching, doing their student teaching for free, had to pay to go work 50 hours a week. You know, and we're just normal, you know, everyday people. You know, just having a job ain't, ain't you know, it's not enough. One last story that we want to bring you today is from another KFTC member here in Central Kentucky. I signed up for health insurance when I turned 26 uh, because I stayed on my parents' insurance until I turned 26. And I was able to do that, and a lot of people have been able to do that because of the Affordable Care Act. That's Miranda Brown, who you may remember from our last segment. She signed a lot of folks up for health care, including herself. And the reason why I had to go on the exchange on Connect to get health insurance instead of getting it through my employer is that I was working two part-time jobs, which me as a 26-year-old is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be exploring different jobs, I wanted to be learning different skills, and I wasn't entirely sure how I wanted to settle down. So that was perfect for me. And they were both awesome jobs that I really cared about and put a lot into. And one of them has led to my current full-time job. So that was a good decision for me as a person. And I think a lot of young people find situations like that maybe because they have to or because, like me, they want to. So I couldn't get employer-sponsored coverage, so I had to go on the exchange. I made enough money to not be Medicaid eligible, but I got on the exchange and I found something affordable. Just like Sarah Martin, Miranda considers herself to be a relatively healthy person, not really in need of regular care. But also like Sarah, she suddenly started needing repeated doctor visits. So I went and, you know, I got my annual checkup, I got my pap smear and everything. And also birth control is considered preventive care. So birth control for women is free. So I took advantage of that. And... uh, you know, several things happened. Uh, you know, if you have an abnormal pap smear, you have to go back. And it was not a big deal. It was fine. But for, for different reasons, I wound up having to go to my primary care doctor every month for like five or six months. And it was great to have insurance and be able to do that and not pay a lot of money because at that point it wasn't preventive care anymore. So that, in that way, it really helped me. And that was something unpredictable. Without the free preventative services from Obamacare, Miranda would have had to pay thousands in medical bills. Another thing people don't realize is that preventive services are free and that every health insurance plan has to include a minimum set of benefits. It doesn't matter if it's Medicaid, employer-sponsored coverage, or on the exchange. All health insurance plans have to cover prescriptions, like checkups, preventive care, but also maternity and um, prenatal care. They also all health insurance plans have to cover mental health and uh, like rehabilitative services and things, behavioral health. Those are covered benefits, so that's a big security blanket. I've definitely benefited from the Affordable Care Act in those ways. Really all of us have. Okay, we're going to take another break real quick. When we come back, Austin Gaffney brings us the story of folks right here in central Kentucky who are finding ways to push back against the repeal of the ACA just by talking to their neighbors. Up next on Power to the People with KFTC. Stay with us. I'm Robbie from the Central Kentucky chapter of Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. Stay up to date with our episodes of Power to the People by subscribing to the show on iTunes. 
Find the show by searching KFTC in iTunes or the podcast app. It takes just a few seconds, and you'll automatically be updated when a new episode is available. Thanks, y'all. I'm, 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 I'm on SSI, and I can't do a dig on thing. They're going to cut everything off. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm moving around. I can't do nothing. I have seizures. So I don't go nowhere, and I can't do nothing. Used to be a roof for 15 years. Used to what? Used to be a roof for 15 years. Yeah, and I fell 20 feet off a building. Oh. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I told my, told my legs and everything up. Do you want to sit down? Yeah, sit yeah. down. I'm, hold on. I'm okay. I'll be right back. Okay. The voice you're hearing is William Mullins. The voices you hear talking to William are myself, Victoria, and Colin. Kentuckians for the Commonwealth members and canvassers who've been going out in Kentucky's 6th district in March and April to ask Andy Barr's constituents about their health care. William lives on Ohio Street, and he has his health care covered under Social Security, or what he calls SSI. He told us that it covered all his medical bills, but because of his seizures, he's not able to work. We knocked on his door on a Saturday morning while he was in the middle of making some french fries and chicken wings. He told us it was the first thing he'd eaten in two days. Still, after he went back inside to turn off the stove, that's the sound of the screen door clanging, he made time to sit and talk to us. We asked him how he felt about the Republicans' plan to repeal and replace Obamacare. Did I ask you if you supported what the Republicans were trying to do with repealing the Obamacare? No, I don't, I don't agree with that. It's going to kill a whole lot of people. William's fears over the Republican health care bill seeped into the rest of the conversation. Right before this clip... Colin told William about his representative, Andy Barr's, support of the legislation. William agreed to call Andy Barr and then said this. I know a lot of people that really bad off. Most of all my friends are bad off. I ain't, I ain't seen them in 10, 15 years. We, mm-hmm. We'd be playing ball and everything together, run together. Half of them can't hardly see. Mm-hmm. Got one, he's got about four or five of them died. Mm-hmm. I just miss all of them. I don't go nowhere. I don't talk to many people. The only people I talk to is my neighbors across the street, and that's it. Go see my mom down the street. She'd be 93. Uh, wow. June the 17th, had 15 kids. Took all of them by herself. Where does she live? This down, way? No, this down way? that way. Down with my other sister. Uh-huh. Had to go pick up the other day she fell. Oh, I'm sorry. She ain't better save my kids, though. That's the problem. This is one of the main problems of healthcare in America that the Republicans are not talking about the medical problems that can overtake struggling communities and cement a cycle of poverty. Now, William fell off a roof. Obamacare probably wouldn't have prevented that. But the same workplace accident probably didn't happen to his family and his friends. The ACA's plan for affordable health care is preventative care. It allows people to have regular eye doctor visits, dental care, and medical checkups so the illness or ill health that falls upon the backs of Americans can be attended to before it becomes debilitating. Since the ACA was passed in 2010, nearly 20 million more people have gained insurance. The number of Americans reporting they delayed care because of associated costs has dropped by a third. 24,000 deaths are being avoided annually, and people already insured through their jobs are saving an estimated $3,600 on monthly premiums. The majority of people who live near William on Ohio Street are not wealthy enough to cover devastating medical bills without insurance, and they do devastate. 
And then people are forced to choose between surgeries and medications, medications and food, food and their energy bills. This is the reality of healthcare in America without the ACA. So about a week before we spoke to William, I went canvassing with two other KFTC members, Kate and Matthew. We talked to a University of Kentucky professor who moved to the bluegrass from Texas, Ryan, about his struggles with being underinsured while in graduate school. Here's Kate asking him about that so experience. Is there anyone in your life who is or has been underinsured? I have been. You have been. <laughs> yeah. And what was that experience? Like uh, it was. You? I mean, I was a graduate student, right? So mm-hmm. when you get sick, you just tough it out. If, I mean, luckily, I never had any <laughs> catastrophic things. But I was a skier and a climber, and it was would have been really easy for me to, you know, break a leg or something yeah. stupid. You know, something simple, even arm, a finger, right. anything stupid. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I never went to the doctor, and you know, I think that's the big problem now, right? Is that all these people that are finally getting insurance and going to the doctor mm-hmm. are finding out there's a lot of things that they could have been addressed sooner, preventative yeah. care, right? I think right. that's the other problem I have with most healthcare in America is that preventative care is really like not, um, it's not a priority. So right. they make, like UKHMO makes it really difficult to find a place where you can get a covered flu shot. Although Ryan has health insurance through UK, he has friends and family who have received insurance through Obamacare. He also has his own reasons for why he believes implementation has been challenging. Here's Ryan again. The people I, that I know that are on it, you know, there's some challenges with it, sure, but mm-hmm. it's like anything else. I mean, government executed is never perfect, right? Right. So, right. but it's still still better than nothing. Right. Do you but, feel like um, some of the challenges are that the insurance is still expensive? or? Yeah, it's well, it's still expensive, but I think the bigger problem is that... Um, yeah. We moved here and got on the UK HMO, and I can't get a doctor's appointment. I can't. I mean, it's a huge problem, right? They really? expanded coverage for a lot of people that were really sick, but the healthcare system didn't get any bigger, mm. right? And so, um, I think that's a real challenge. And I think that's why a lot of people are, are kind of dumping on Obamacare because it it there was a lot of a lot of really sick people that got coverage all of a sudden that hadn't had coverage forever, so they needed a lot of help. Right. Um, and I don't get, you know, I don't get angry about it. I, I get my coffee over at the Kentucky Clinic every day, and I walk through there, and you see these people, yeah. and you're just, you're like, holy cow, they need it way worse than we do. So. so maybe you've noticed that Ryan and William's stories are more unique than the traditional canvassing that happens each election cycle. First, it's springtime. There are no upcoming elections. Second, something you can't hear is that each of these conversations lasted 15 to 20 minutes. They are based more in conversation than in outcomes. This type of canvassing is called deep canvassing, and the KFTC member who you heard in the last clip, Kate, started the project out of her home. I asked her about what inspired her to take on this project. Here she is. My name is Kate Piggott, and I um, I got involved with KFTC after Trump won the election. Um, I was really disheartened and um, and I didn't really know what to do. So Kate decided to take on deep canvassing, an idea her chapter organizer, Beth Howard, introduced to her. Kate explains deep canvassing much better than I can. How this is different from regular canvassing is that it's a lot more about listening than it is about talking. Um, when we do canvassing around an election, we sort of have a mission to communicate a particular objective, like are you registered to vote? Have you decided who you're voting for? would you consider voting for this candidate, right? And these are the reasons why I I think you should vote for this candidate. 
Um, and it's kind of more like the canvasser does a lot of the speaking and, and it's a shorter conversation and it's a more one-sided conversation. Um, and deep canvassing, so far it has been a lot more listening for me, which I really love. Because you go to somebody's door and you ask them their experiences with, um, with the healthcare system and their feelings about healthcare policy, and you kind of learn a lot. It's really a lot of learning, and also a lot of empathizing and validating, and just being present and being a listener. What do you think the effects are on the one, the people that you're going to see at the door, even if you don't see a change in the scale, and then two, on the on the people actually going out to do the work, the canvassers that mm-hmm. you've been working with. Well, I'm hoping that the effects on the people that we talk to are that they feel like this is an important issue that they should pay attention to and take seriously. Also, one that they can be politically engaged on. I think we leave them with a list of things that they can do and ways that they can get involved. And so hopefully if they feel like this, if the conversation lingers with them and they go back to their kitchens or go back to their living rooms and think, actually, this does matter a lot to my family or this does matter a lot to my friends and maybe I could do more and maybe I should do more, um, then they know exactly what they can do. If there's somebody who's resistant to the ACA or wants or is more um, interested in a repeal and replacement, then they might go back to their house into their homes and think, okay, so I just met some like <laughs> do-gooder progressives who didn't seem so bad. Have you seen or heard um, from other canvassers about anyone's opinion changing throughout that conversation that you're having with them at their door? Um, I have heard from other canvassers that they have been able to, they've met people who felt underinformed on the issue and they could become more informed um, and so that's been really useful. I've also had canvassers report that they've talked to people who maybe wanted to be more active. Um, they maybe were not registered to vote and became registered to vote uh, or received the registration card from the canvasser. Um, people who believe it's an important issue but are not sure what to do and so the canvasser can then help them like activate in whatever way feels um, good for them. Um, so those conversations have been good. I, I don't know about really moving people on the scale but we also haven't yet gone into, um, we have, we're still testing the script and getting the survey, I should call it a survey, we're really still testing the survey and getting the language right and trying to figure out how best to use it, so. Can you tell me, like, kind of what the scale is that you're talking about in the... Yeah, so we ask people at the beginning of the survey where they fall on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being that they would 100% not support a Republican plan to repeal and replace the ACA or Obamacare, and 10 being that they would 100% support such a repeal and replacement. Um, So at the beginning of the survey, they tell us where they are on that scale. And then we go through a series of questions that just invites um, invites the person we're speaking to to think about friends or family that they have who might 
be using this service or using insurance through the exchange or might be on Medicaid and then um, their own experiences with health care or health insurance whether or not they've ever found themselves in a position where they couldn't afford medical care that they need and so these are kind of questions designed to help people think empathetically about others um, and we try to spark a conversation and we try to also participate in that conversation as like humans as humans talking to other humans right um, and part of the reason we do that is so for people who are sort of maybe really resistant to this or really resistant to more progressive policy in general we are providing sort of a face and a person who's respectful and thoughtful and personally invested so that can hopefully um, at least just open up conversation or open up space in them to think more about their position. After we ask those more um, in-depth questions about their experiences and their loved ones experiences we ask them to rate themselves again on the scale so we could see on the scale if they've moved and partly we haven't found a lot of movement because we have been sort of like broadening our circle out out into Lexington and we're finding a lot of really supportive people which means that we're just getting their stories and trying to figure out how to activate them in the conversation in um, in really politically engaged ways. I want to point out here that I actually did meet someone on one of these Saturdays, a woman who lived on Ohio Street. She was worried about making sure her medications were covered, and when she was asked about the 1 through 10 scale at the beginning of the conversation, she said a 4, because she wanted everyone to have the same access she did to medical assistance. After we talked to her for a while about the limitations for coverage under the Republican plan, she moved her opinion to a 1, as in, she would not support a Republican plan. Finally, I asked Kate why she chose to deal with the issue of healthcare when starting her deep canvassing project. Here's Kate one last time. There are so many things I think need addressing, but this is something that every single family in every single household in Lexington, in the 6th District, in Kentucky, and nationally cares about on some level. Right, whether they're supportive or not, they have they they have a body, and so they can relate to the idea of needing to care for that body. They can relate to the idea of needing to pay for health care, which is oftentimes exorbitant, or covered by insurance, which is challenging to understand. Has loopholes, has high deductibles, etc. So, it's a really good issue to do this kind of canvassing on because we can very more easily um, help people empathize right yeah everybody has a body everybody has health care needs and everybody has family or friends with a story right so everybody knows somebody who has been in need to close i want to introduce you all to marie marie like william lives on ohio street but she just moved there recently from a small town in greenup county she, like the other two people canvassed in this story, didn't support the Republican health care plan. Here she is trying to sign a petition for Andy Barr to stop supporting a repeal to Obamacare. I'm going to have my glasses. What do I need to do? You want to wear mine? I don't know if I can see with yours. Hold on. It's probably a week. 
but I don't know. I don't. Are yours prescription? No. Are they from the dollar They're store? They're from the dollar is? store. That's where mine are for. They're just in the other room. Marie's eyes have been giving her trouble for years, and even though she is on Medicare, she still struggles to pay her medical bills. Um, is there was there ever a time in your life where you felt like you couldn't um, afford the medical care that you? Needed? I can't afford it now. I mean, I, I'm on Medicare, and even with the um, copay that I have to pay with my insurance, uh, I can't even afford the bills. Uh, I had eye surgery on both eyes last year. I had uh, cataracts and um, um, because of my diabetes. Uh, I can't afford all the hospital bills. I'm, I mean, they've got me in debt. The eye surgery has had me in debt. Just, you know, anytime you go to the hospital, it's ridiculous. I've had a lot of health issues. I've got heart problems, diabetes, all that was hereditary in my family. And then, of course, I have PTSD. What were you called? PTSD? PTSD. Yeah, thank you. And it was from a lot of childhood traumas. And uh, being an abused child coming up into adulthood abuseness. Uh, there's not a lot of out there for you. And then, I, I mean, I stopped going to the therapist. I stopped going taking medication and stuff because I can't afford it. So I just have to deal with it day by day. Mm-hmm. And all that, mm-hmm. all that coincides with what they're trying to do. Being underinsured, struggling with medical bills is stressful. Yeah. So stress makes your conditions worse. Yes. During our conversation, Marie had invited us into her living room and pulled out chairs for us to sit around in dim lighting. The gurgle you can hear in the background of our conversation is her fish tank. I think this is exactly what Kate was talking about, the reason for deep canvassing. Everyone has a story. Every story deserves to be heard and validated. Have you, have you talked to Kentuckians for the Commonwealth before, Marie? No. No? Okay. No, matter of fact, y'all the y'all the first people that I've ever communicated with about politics at all. Oh, well, thank ever. you for sitting thank down you. with us. Yeah. Appreciate this it. is the, this is, the is warmest the, welcome we've ever had. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, now, is this the number on here, too, where I can get online and look him up? Because I've pulled him up once before. Oh, Andy Barr? Mm-hmm. I'm grateful to Kate and the other canvassers for engaging with people like Marie and the dozens of other Kentuckians in the 6th District who had their voices and their bodies heard. Thanks to Victoria, Colin, and Matthew for agreeing to be recorded while they canvassed, and thanks to Kate, Ryan, William, and Marie for sharing their stories. That was Austin Gaffney, one of the producers of our show. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we'll hear more from the resistance to the AHCA in Kentucky. Stay with us. Hi, this is Macy from Chicago. KFDC believes that thriving communities need public investments and that every person in Kentucky should pay their fair share of taxes. That's why we're supporting and training Kentuckians to organize for tax justice in our communities. Join us Wednesday, May 17th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Central Public Library, Room C, to learn more about what Governor Bevin is planning for a special session on taxes what messaging and framing our tax coalition is using to challenge bad policy, 
and how to talk about these issues with each other. If you're outside Lexington, we may have upcoming trainings in your area too. You can find out more info by searching CKY Tax Justice on Facebook. Thanks. Welcome back to Power to the People with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, where this month we're talking about healthcare and the movements that work to affect it. So far, we've heard stories of folks impacted by Obamacare and by Connect here in Kentucky. And we've also heard from folks who are working to change the conversation, to push back against the repeal of the ACA. When Congressman Andy Barr came to town in late April, it was the first time he had done so in any sort of meaningful way since the beginning of the session in January. He has, instead, held a number of town halls in more rural areas of the 6th District, places like Mount Sterling, Kentucky, population 7,000, Folks in Lexington were not having it. They insisted on showing up. People were sharing Facebook statuses with scripts on what to say when calling his office, organizing letter-writing parties, visiting his local office in Lexington, to no avail, of course. One event in Lexington, a sort of fake town hall where the organizers quite publicly invited Andy Barr, along with Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul, to come face their constituents, was famously called the Empty Suits Town Hall. The organizers even placed suit-wearing mannequins on stage. Of course, the guests of honor never showed up. The story made the Huffington Post. So back then, it felt like the only thing we could do to be heard was to show up in places like Mount Sterling. The event was Coffee with Your Congressman, and it was at 8 o'clock in the morning on a weekday morning when many people are working. The, the room was quite full when he arrived at 8 o'clock, and one of the first things that he said was, wow, this is way more people than I normally have. That's Central Kentucky KFTC member Dr. Carolyn DuPont. She's a professor of history at Eastern Kentucky University, and she was one of the many Lexingtonians who traveled to Mount Sterling for the town hall. Andy Barr advertised it as a constituent meeting, and of course we were troubled that he had not held that constituent meeting in Lexington. And we looked at it as a way that he could say, I'm doing constituent meetings, but uh, do it in a place where he knew that the audience would be smaller. And of course, everyone in Congress, all the Republicans in Congress, knew that people who were dismayed by the results of the election were coming out in force to meet with, with congressmen when they held town hall meetings. There's definitely something to be said about, you know, outsiders being bussed in for an event like this to cause a stir. In fact, shortly after protesters showed up at an event for Mitch McConnell in Lawrenceburg, President Trump tweeted, quote, the so-called angry crowds in home districts of some Republicans are actually, in numerous cases, planned out by liberal activists. Sad. But shortly after Congressman Barr began taking questions from the crowd, he asked who had traveled from outside the 6th Congressional District. No one raised their hand. And so I think that, yeah, that he, he knew that his ideas would sell better in rural areas, uh, or believed that they would, and um, I, you know, maybe when he set those up he didn't expect as many of us to go to him. So I think it does speak to that, that divide. Carolyn's talking here about the so-called urban-rural divide that's in no way unique to Kentucky. Last fall, President Trump enjoyed a cozy victory in Kentucky 
the first state in the country to be called for the Republican candidate. But Lexington and Louisville were solidly blue, to no real surprise, and Congressman Andy Barr's re-election followed a similar pattern. As Dr. DuPont pointed out to me, Fayette County was the only county in the 6th District that went to Barr's opponent, Reverend Nancy Jo Kemper. I do think that that's one of the reasons that it's so important for the 2018 election, for those of us who really want to have a candidate representing us, really want to have a, a congressperson representing us, that we need to focus our areas, our, our efforts, excuse me, in the 18 counties in the district that are not Fayette County. Because his district is 19 counties and only one of them is Fayette County. But there's enough support for him in those other 18 counties. And that's what's kept him in office. I think that for many Kentuckians who are marginally employed or unemployed or who have suffered from the losses in the coal industry, yes, they want health care. But what they really want is a job. And they understand that with a job usually comes health care because that's the way we've chosen to do it in the United States. That, that isn't the only way to do it, but that's the way we do it here. And if it's a choice between health care and a job, which will include health care, they'll, they'll pick a job any day. And that's exactly what Republicans like Andy Barr and Donald Trump preached during this election. Jobs. And it sounds really nice. Who doesn't want more jobs? But those are long-term, big-picture promises. Right now, Barr and his fellow Republicans have passed a bill through the House that would take away Medicaid coverage for hundreds of thousands of Kentuckians in the next few years. A bill that makes acne and anxiety, two of my personal favorites, pre-existing conditions that insurers can charge you more for. And that's nothing to say of what this bill does to the members of the trans community. Yes, transsexualism is a pre-existing condition under the AHCA. Just existing as a trans person. Needless to say, there were lots of folks in Mount Sterling who were eager to share their story. Um, in particular, I'm remembering uh, a woman whose daughter um, had an opioid addiction. And because of that, uh, of the ACA, her daughter is now in treatment. The daughter is maybe 22 or something like that. One of the most compelling stories was a young man. He stood up and, and told about how he had had a, a mental illness that had gone untreated for many years because he had no health care. And of course, his symptoms became worse because he was going untreated. And because of the ACA, he was able to get in treatment. And this is the first time in his life that he's had access to this treatment. His story was very, very compelling, and, and I thought one of the most compelling things that he said was, you know, when you talk about the ACA as a failure, which Congressman Barr does repeatedly, they, they just don't want to admit that the ACA has been an enormous success in many ways. And most of us understand that there have been difficulties associated with the ACA, but those are fixable. You know, I, I found it telling maybe that Congressman Barr could sit there and listen to this young man tell his story and not be moved and then to continue to uh, support repeal of the ACA. Of course, if you ask Congressman Barr, he says his office has been, quote, flooded with calls of folks who have been hurt by the ACA. But I also think that that crowd did something that is so important, and that is to let him know <laughs> when he has said something that we know is political speak designed to mislead or change the conversation. And the point at which he did this that I thought was um, 
that the crowd responded so so appropriately was when someone was asking about the pollution of our streams because of the repeal of this regulation that prevented coal companies from dumping their waste in, in Kentucky streams. And he, um, <laughs> he started going into, well, it needs to happen at the state level. And he said, if, if we're going to control companies ability to use our streams in this way, we have to do it the American way. And you know, this is political speak um, that's designed to obfuscate and to cloud the issue. And um, when he said that, the crowd just rose up and yelled, no, uh, because we all understood, you know, that that was, in the words of Joe Biden, malarkey. <laughs> so I don't think we changed his mind. Um, and I don't think his mind is changeable. So I'm going to be working very hard to elect another candidate in 2018. For folks like Dr. DuPont, the only viable option is simply getting him out of office. She says there are fundamental differences in the way Andy Barr thinks of government and the way she thinks of government. It, it, it has to do with how he talks about taxes, but it, it goes actually deeper than that because it's how he talks about Americans and his understanding of individuals and communities and the government. And it seems to me that he has a very individualistic approach, you know, that it's every man for himself and every man should look out to pay the, the least of his money to the federal government. And there's no sense there of an obligation to other people. And there's no sense there that he, that he belongs to a community that when one of us does well, we all do well. In fact, Congressman Barr did finally come to Lexington in April. He held a town hall discussion at Lafayette High School, alma mater of Backstreet Boy and Trump supporter Brian Luttrell, the second man I ever loved. It was standing room only, and it was hot. I kept thinking about what Carolyn said about Barr's particular brand of patriotism. There was one point where someone asked about immigration reform, and the congressman told the crowd that we need to make sure that when new immigrants stand at their citizenship ceremony and put their hand over their heart and say the Pledge of Allegiance, that they, quote, actually mean it. Honestly, I don't know what measures we could take to make sure that citizens are actually as patriotic as we want them to be, and I'm not sure if he's implying here that immigrants go through this process as a plot to destroy us from the inside or whatever. I have no idea. It was a really gross thing to say. Most of the crowd that day was pretty hostile, and most of them were there to talk about the AHCA. Kentucky, we have the highest incidence of diabetes in the country. 
People like you, young people like you, deserve to have access to, to, to affordable health care. So here's what, here's what I would say. Amanda, need, Amanda deserves an answer, folks. Amanda, de Amanda deserves to, to know what is in this bill. And so what I would say to you, number one, is that if you maintain continuous coverage and you have access to Medicaid, is that what you will not, you will not, you will not lose Medicaid. If you have access to Medicaid right now, you are grandfathered in, number one. But number two, if you're in the expansion population, we want better for you. We want you to have access to greater choices of doctors. So he goes on here to talk more about the freedom of choice. Ironically, insurers have pulled out of Kentucky since Governor Bevin has dismantled Connect and we now have fewer choices than ever. For example, there isn't a single PPO plan available on healthcare.gov for Fayette County, which essentially gives you more flexibility in choosing your provider. Barr ends up talking a lot about tax credits and innovation here, but the crowd is not having it. For one, he's being really misleading about all the folks who would lose their Medicaid coverage. As we learned earlier, Medicaid expansion will be cut by 2020 under the AHCA. It's also worth noting that the American Diabetes Association released a statement just a few days ago expressing their, quote, deep disappointment at the passage of the AHCA in the House. The statement cites concern over weakened tax credits and last-minute amendments that would affect those with diabetes. Quote, the most alarming last-minute changes to the bill will allow states to waive the requirement for essential health benefits and health status rating. Weakening these rules will give insurers the ability to charge people with pre-existing conditions such as diabetes higher prices. I caught up with a man who was first to speak during the nearly two-hour public comment section. His name is Chuck Eddy. Turns out Chuck had been at the Mount Sterling Town Hall too. I asked him what was different this time. Very similar. He's not, he's not really giving the answers that I want to hear, and I don't really think that he's... I haven't really heard him listen to the concerns. That's my, that's my biggest concern more than anything else. So what were your comments uh, addressing today? My biggest concern is that the health essentials need to stay. The three I'm most concerned with are free birth control. The easiest way to prevent abortions is prevent pregnancies. Birth control, widespread, free, it needs to stay. Psychological counseling and drug counseling. At one of the meetings we had in the office with this district uh, director, Pat Melton, there was a lady there who was a psychiatrist and she said, with the ACA, people were coming out of Eastern Kentucky who had never been helped at all before. The way that I'm resisting his efforts in particular is trying to vote him out in 2018. I mean, and this is one thing that I think that, um, that we need to just keep in mind. Um, and as a historian of the civil rights movement, I, I, I think of this a lot because um, you know, I went to the Women's March in Washington in January. I had both my daughters, and it was just a great moment. And, um, of course, the March on Washington brings to mind the 1963 March on Washington, in which Martin Luther King Jr. gave his great I Have a Dream speech. But what I know as a historian of the Civil Rights Movement, that those big, spectacular events, while they're great for inspiring people, they're not where the work really gets done. And Yes, we should show up to protest. Yes, we should show up to march. But if we think once we've done that, that we've really done something, we need to think again. Because where, the, where change is gonna come is by people organizing in a grassroots way to vote, 
to get other people to vote, to get information in people's hands, um, you know, to really change the power structure. I don't have a bigger priority than to see that Andy Barr is voted out of office in 2018. That was Dr. Carolyn DuPont, professor of history at Eastern Kentucky University. So we're going to wrap things up, but before I go, I just got to say there's obviously so much to this conversation. Even since we've been wrapping up this podcast, it feels like new stuff is happening every day. So to stay on top of how you can plug into the story about healthcare in Kentucky, make sure you like us on Facebook at Central Kentucky Chapter of Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. Our show is produced by me, Meredith Wadlington, and Austin Gaffney, with help from Thomas Mosley. Special thanks today to Miranda Brown and Kentucky Voices for Health, an awesome organization working to improve healthcare for all Kentuckians and to amplify those stories of folks affected by the ACA and Connect. Check them out online at kyvoicesforhealth.org. Also, thanks today to Jess Hayes Lucas and Beth Howard. Deborah Winslow, Kate Pickett, and all those awesome folks who are spending their Saturdays canvassing neighborhoods and talking to folks about healthcare. Speaking of, if you want to do something about the ACA, we'd love to have you join us on one of our deep canvassing days. The next one is actually coming up tomorrow, May 13th, and is a great way to really dig into what the Affordable Care Act is all about. We'll be canvassing from 2 to 4 this Saturday and next. And you can find out more by emailing Beth Howard. She's at bethhoward at kftc.org. You can also look for the event on Facebook by searching More Deep Canvassing with CKYKFTC. Also be sure to join us next week at our monthly chapter meeting. That's Thursday, May 18th at the Episcopal Mission House on the corner of 4th and MLK in Lexington. We'll be there from 7 to 9 talking about ways to get involved in our work. We'd love to have you. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes by searching KFTC. And if you're a SoundCloud person, we have a brand new SoundCloud page where you can find other cool stuff KFTC members across the state are working on. It's awesome. Just search Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next month.